Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Lisa Hyland, Associate Director for Public Programming here in the Energy Program. Today we ask, where do we stand in 2019 relative to the climate challenge? Looking back at 2018, a few things stand out. The release of several studies, notably the Special Report on Global Warming from the IPCC and the National Climate Assessment, together with the emergence of the Green New Deal, re-energized the conversation around global climate policy. And events in the United States and internationally, some wildfires, hurricanes, and floods which caused severe damage, helped to renew the call for an immediate response and for sustained action. To take a look at the progress or lack of progress last year and what we might expect going forward, my colleague and director of the Energy Program, Sarah Ladislaw, sat down with Jonathan Pershing of the Hewlett Foundation. Let's turn it over to Sarah. Thanks for being here, Jonathan. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here as well. Thank you. So um, many of our listeners know uh, who you are and what you do, but why don't you, for those who are not familiar, um, what is the Environment Program at the Hewlett Foundation and and how do you uh, decide what you do? So the Hewlett Foundation's been around for about 50 years, uh, and it has a number of different areas in, in, in which it works, of which historically one of the largest has been the environment. On the environmental side, we've had a long history of working on Western conservation, uh, lands, waters of the West. And over the last 10 years, we've really launched a big program on climate change. I'm the director of that program, and our work spans not just work in the United States, but also activities in China, in India, in Europe, as well as in the global, uh, the global exercise at the UN and the international process of negotiation. We're one of many philanthropies that works in this agenda. Uh, we're a large one. We have a fair amount of resources that we put to the table, but we're only one of the partners. And what we do in many ways is to try to supplement what individuals, what organizations, what governments are trying to do to move this process forward. We're a philanthropic nonprofit organization, so we're not working on electoral politics. We don't do lobbying. We do public information. We do analysis. We support groups that are trying to better understand problems. We will support scientists and research analysts in helping frame issues and bring information to bear on the solutions. We believe that that kind of informed discussion helps drive better policy and better outcomes. And those are things that we strive for in this particular arena. We picked up climate because we see it as perhaps the most central of the environmental problems that we're facing as a world, as a global community. And I think that some of the recent information bears out the urgency and the size and magnitude of the issues. We've been thinking about this for a number of years now and are working across these countries, across multiple sectors to try to address that problem. So I want to get to some of the... um uh, the framing of that problem and, and the problem of climate change and, and how you're focusing your work and how you think about the challenge. Um, but first, you know, just to say, you know, having worked with the foundation community and seen how they affect the way in which organizations and governments and thinkers really talk about these issues, um, you play a very important and, and influential role. I, I do want to just, you know, for the interest of transparency, note that the Hewlett Foundation does fund uh, some programs at CSIS, just so our, our viewers understand that as well. But you and I have actually known each other for 
for a bit longer than that, um, started working together when you were at the World Resources Institute, then you went into government and you were the special uh, envoy for climate change, did a whole bunch of different things in the Obama administration and shaping um, uh, their climate policy and approach domestically and internationally to climate. Um, and one of the great traditions I've had here at, at CSIS over the years is every year to sort of check in with you and see how you view um, where we are in relation to this giant and very complex issue uh, as it relates to climate change. So maybe, I know it's kind of a broad question, but um, uh, where do you think, you know, 2019 we stand relative to the climate challenge? So in some ways it's been a great year. Uh, some real progress. And in some ways, it's been a daunting year, new information about uh, urgency and about lack of progress. And let me start with the second, because to a certain extent, it's a counterpoint. This was the year, or 20, 2018 was a year, in which we saw the release of two major reports, one domestic, the National Climate Assessment, and one international, a report on what the world might look like if we were to exceed 1.5 degrees of warming since the pre-industrial period, and in fact, try to distinguish between 1.5 and 2 degrees of warming, and, and what would that mean? The latter was done by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. The former done by a group of about 300 mostly governmental scientists or scientists supported out of the U.S. government process. They both reach fairly similar conclusions. And I would, uh, I, I read them as saying the problem is quite severe. The near-term damages are greater than we had been thinking. And the urgency of action has been heightened, not diminished by those reports. It was also a year for a series of damages, domestically and internationally. Uh, I have moved to California at the end of the Obama administration, and the Hillett Foundation is located in Northern California, just outside of San Francisco. And this year's wildfire season was unprecedented. We've never had wildfires that have killed so many people ever in the history of our recorded information. Uh, we haven't had so much property damage. Um, we've had an entire utility in the Pacific Gas and Electric PG&E utility declaring bankruptcy because its assets will not cover its liabilities from those fires, and that's changing the political landscape. We had the same kinds of sets of damages around a set of hurricanes that came through the South, and we had it globally. So if you think about the U.S. as a microcosm, the fires in Australia were horrible. The dynamics of the floods that really plagued Bangladesh were extraordinary. Some of the flooding that came through the U.K. was remarkable in its intensity and the severity of the damages that were attached. So this was a year in which damages stopped being theoretical and became immediate and local and really widespread. And I think for many people, as they look at the climate problem, it was tomorrow's problem someplace else. And that made it pretty easy to dismiss. Mm -hmm. And if you look at some of the polling data, particularly in the United States, that was recently done by folks like Tony Lazarowitz at Yale, he's looked at these numbers and it shows a marked increase in the level of attention and the perception of the need to act. And in fact, a number of people identifying that the, the sort of very tangible presence of those impacts influenced their perspective. I think that's right. And I, I think it has a way of doing that. If I think it's a problem that my grandchildren will face, and really only if they travel to Indonesia, I, we worry about it a very different way than if it's something that I'm going to face and it's happening in my town today. So all of a sudden, it's place and it's, not, it's the immediacy in time. 
On the other side, there are some really exciting developments that give you much more of a, of a positive frame. Uh, for the first time, we're seeing uh, energy prices in some of the zero carbon options being competitive, not just in some unusual places, but globally, almost all the new bids that people are putting in for commercial scale renewable energy for solar, for wind, are competing favorably with gas and are cheaper than coal. Mm -hmm. And that's even when you take into account, uh, don't take into account any of the ancillary benefits or costs. So there's an air pollution problem. If you're in China or in India and you can't breathe the air, coal has consequences and renewables don't. But even without those being factored in, the price has become so low that they're now competing. We're seeing at the other end a plethora of electric vehicles on the market. And you're seeing that growing, finally getting past some of those marks where you can believe that the market's really taking off. And we're starting to see that. Uh, something like 30 different companies have got models in the global community on electric vehicles. They're penetrating at a really great clip. If I live in a place like California, that's anomalous. But actually, if I'm in a bus in parts of China, all the buses are electric. And if I'm in a scooter in Beijing, all the scooters are electric. And if I'm looking at what's going on now in places like Hawaii, which see that as a model, which is an expensive place for electricity, it's going electric. Mm -hmm. So you've got this really interesting split where the policy had felt out of reach. The costs had felt out of reach. And in this last year, they've not only reached parity, but we're seeing penetration at scale. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back because you mentioned the polling, and I thought there was a lot of really good information both in that and the University of Chicago um, polling that had been done as well about people's attitudes and, in fact, like what kind of costs they'd be willing to bear um, in order to, you know, deal with climate change in some way. And I, what's interesting is, you you know, you're finding a lot of optimism. And I think that this is, it's a great, it's well-placed optimism for the sort of cost competitiveness of the technologies. And I think in a lot of places, they've sort of figured out um, how to, you know, enable those markets to grow more and more quickly. The question had always been, you know, does, does the incidence and the reality of climate impacts make people more willing to support policies and or spend money on the solutions? Or does it have some sort of other sort of dislocating effect where people just kind of lose faith in governments and their ability, you know, certainly as we saw in Puerto Rico and other places to actually bounce back from these sorts of things? Um, did you see anything in that, you know, sort of polling data that indicated you thought that people would be more willing to to support action, or 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 have we not really quite reached that threshold point yet? I think people are prepared to support action. I think that part of the history of reluctance to act has been a function of not seeing action solving the problem. That um, And that's not the only issue, but I think it's one of the issues. So if you look at a big problem like climate, which is a little bit distant and a little bit far away and in time and in place, and you think, it sounds really expensive. I can't really see myself doing that because I have immediate concerns and immediate needs, and those will take priority. If instead what you say is, it's immediate and near, which I wasn't really thinking it was, but now I do, and actually there's these three things that I could do. It just feels solvable. It feels manageable. It feels enabling. I don't think that's everywhere. I think we clearly have real issues and there are dislocations and we are seeing them. But we're also seeing, I think for the first time, and this year might have been the tipping point where it no longer feels untenable to solve it. It feels like there are pathways. It feels like they're not just the realm of the iconoclastic thinker in the ivory tower. They actually come to places like Iowa, which now has hundreds of thousands of wind 
turbine workers. It has come to places like California and Michigan that are making electric cars. It's coming to places that look at, if I were to do a building retrofit, that employs my carpenters and will save money for the average consumer. And so it's actually worth a small incentive in state government planning to make that happen. To me, that's the shift. It's still overcoming system inertia. It's still overcoming concerns around those transitions. It's mixed in with other deeper concerns about what the future of our economic system looks like and where is the work of the future as we automate our economies. But it feels like it's in the scope of the doable as opposed to the implausible. One of the things that you you didn't really mention in, in sort of your overview of the year was the UNFCCC or the international negotiating process. It struck me this year that while there were some interesting achievements and remarkable achievements in some ways um, with regard to transparency and the rule book and those sorts of things, it really wasn't get that kind of headline attention that, you know, has, has come to be with, like, you know, the previous um, international negotiation processes. What do, you, what do you make of that? I mean, is that you know, purely a factor of the, you know, the U.S. not really participating in the ways that it previously had? Or, or do you think something has changed about whether that process can incite as much action and change as it was supposed to do before as the, the ball moved elsewhere? So I've had um, actually the, the, the particular fortune of being involved in these international negotiations for a very long time. <laughs> uh, I was involved in the first original convention work in the early 1990s and then in the Kyoto Protocol and then uh, through the Obama administration first in Copenhagen and then later in the Paris conversation. And my experience over that 30-year horizon is that it, it ebbs and flows. Not every meeting is a headline meeting. Uh, in my mind, there have been only a handful of headline meetings. The last headline meeting was Paris in 2015, where we actually did the deal. The subsequent years since the Paris discussion have been about implementation. They're often technical. They're essential for moving the agenda forward, but they don't rise to a political level. We in Paris agreed that it was a bottom-up structure, that countries would make their own decisions about how they would act and what policies they would take. And there would be a collective assessment of the adequacy of those efforts. And if they weren't adequate, we'd come back and revisit and prompt additional actions. So a big question that we were dealing with was how do you review the adequacy of effort? How do you review what's being done? How do you know what countries are doing? And that's this rule book question. And the rule book's been underway for a couple of years. And it was virtually concluded in Poland, in, in Katowice, at the meeting that ended uh, at the end of last year. And successfully, mm -hmm. we actually have an agreement that we endorsed, that China endorsed, that Europe endorsed, that India endorsed, that moves us forward. There's one outstanding piece, which we'll come back to in just a second. But that isn't remarkable because we'd committed to doing that two years ago, and this was the timeline. And we met the timeline, and it's not business as usual because, of course, you can always have problems and difficulties. But we did what we said we would do. It's not really news when you do what you say you're going to do. It's news if you fail. <laughs> it is Washington. And it's news when, well, perhaps. It's news when you fail, and it's news when you announce it the first time. We announced it for the first time three years ago, and we didn't fail. We succeeded. So it's kind of a low-key story. It's also a story that really involves a different set of actors. It's a story that involves technically 
competent experts, mm -hmm. people who were deeply immersed in what do I need to know about a country to understand what they've done yeah. and to understand and compare it against what they said they would do. That requires an analyst's expertise. That requires somebody who understands emissions and understands economics and understands energy systems. And those are mostly not the people who you turn to for your public news story. The second thing about it is that partly because of that, it's at a lower level, and partly because there's no U.S. presence. I think the U.S. media is somewhat less engaged. Mm -hmm. And the story would have been if the U.S. had walked out, which they didn't do, and it's unsurprising to me that they didn't do it. The U.S. policy in this area of transparency is grounded in 30 years of historical agreement that this mattered. Mm -hmm. The first Bush administration agreed. The Clinton administration agreed. The second Bush administration agreed. The Obama administration agreed. It is unsurprising that as long as we're in, we would agree. Now, the Trump administration is proposing to withdraw. And I think the next story is going to be, will they actually go through with that? Mm -hmm. And if they do, what are the consequences? Mm -hmm. And will the world continue to move forward whether the U.S. is in or out? Mm -hmm. I think what we can say today is that it looks like they will. Mm -hmm. It looks like policy is continuing apace in most countries. Oh, this wasn't a great year for emissions. They rose globally. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, policies are continuing to move. And while the urgency may be slightly diminished because the U.S. is oppositional instead of supportive, they are continuing. Mm -hmm. The next round of meetings where we have to decide what we will do, those will be tough. Yeah. But that won't be in 2019 either. We'll launch that conversation in 2019, and we'll probably have some conclusion of it in 2020 or even 2021 which means maybe at the end of this administration, maybe the next administration, by the time that's actually completed. To my way of thinking, that's the next round. So what happens between now and then in the international negotiations? They become a place where you convene and figure out how do you want to approach that problem. Again, some news, but not high profile, no big splashy announcements, framing of how you have a conversation. I think it's a really interesting discussion. I think it'll be incredibly important how we frame it. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a, maybe anecdotally, but interesting to think through how individuals set up conversations that are hard inside their families. How do you prepare for it? You go into Thanksgiving and you disagree. You do it very carefully. And you have an agenda and you want to make sure that your uncle doesn't disagree and your parents don't disagree, your kids don't blow up. So you think about how you want to have a constructive dialogue instead of one that at the drop of a hat, explodes. Mm -hmm. This is a hard dialogue. We're asking countries to take major steps. So we'll spend two years setting the table for a constructive conversation. Mm -hmm. That won't make a lot of headlines. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, and I think this is going to be quite important, the fact that things are continuing, that we had Katowice, that we did get the rule book, that's an enormously powerful market signal. Had the alternative happened, had it failed, we would have sent a different signal to the market. This is no longer an issue that governments are paying attention to. They let it go. wasn't a big deal. The U.S. dropped out. The rest of the world stopped. It didn't happen. So if you're a company and if you're thinking about your role in the system, you better keep thinking about it because the world is continuing to move down this road. And to me, the signal of Katowice was that. One last thing about the meeting in Poland, which I think is also important, is the one area that was not resolved. Mm -hmm. 
And it was the area around how you deal with markets. And the whole market discussion has been one of the most complicated and and difficult questions for the last 30 years. A preliminary version of the market frame is in the Framework Convention on Climate Change that was adopted in 1992. The Kyoto Protocol, uh, finished in 95 and and ratified in 1997, uh, essentially is predicated on a structure of markets and trading. The Paris Agreement made some modifications, opened up some doors for multiple regimes and different systems, but had a a significant component, not least because the world has embarked on market structures, a market process. And we couldn't yet finish the rules in that piece. We got very close. Uh, actually, Brazil was not happy with the outcome. There are some accounting issues that were not fully resolved and to their satisfaction. But interestingly enough, I think people had expected even less than we got. And we've now set the stage for probably resolving that in the next meeting that comes up uh, uh, in, in Chile at the end of 2019 or early in 2020. The dates are still being worked out. To me, that's, a, that's progress, and that will not block anything that's underway because those market rules will inform how you can do things globally but not limit what you can do nationally. So it's not as if there's a barrier to markets moving in the absence of the rules. There's maybe less uniformity that might make markets more efficient, but they can still operate. And we got a fair ways down the road. The material and the guidance passed forward from Poland to the next meeting in Chile is quite specific and frames the particular areas that still need work and resolution. So I'm reasonably optimistic those will get finished as well. It's a, you know, it's a useful perspective, the idea that the negotiations have moved into a very sort of technical, technocratic phase as being something to support the idea that it's a process and it's a process that will work. And, and necessarily, there, sh- there doesn't... Well, ambition and raising ambition in terms of country targets and the global targets and all of those sorts of things is always kind of a theme within these discussions. There are moments in time where the political levers within that conversation will be more effective at delivering those outcomes than others. And this doesn't wasn't one of those years. Yeah. I'm also struck by one other thing, uh, which is who was active and what roles they played. China was an essential player in this discussion. I think the U.S. was an important player, but no longer the essential player, partly because the Trump administration decided not to engage, although they have fabulously competent technical people. And those technical people really did contribute. But this is still a political conversation, and you need political people to step up. And China stepped up. The other, uh, I think, really interesting outcome is that the Secretary General of the United Nations stepped up. He came three different times to the meeting. It's really quite unusual. Uh, Often you have someone showing up at that level. Uh, Ban Ki-moon did come. He came to Paris. But um, Secretary General Guterres came at the beginning and made broad comments, this is important, we continue to move. He came in the middle when things were a little bit tough and said, no, no, it's really, really important. You really have to kind of keep this going. And then he came at the end and helped negotiate and, and moderate some of the discussions to try to reach assurances that the deal would be completed and concluded. That's a substantial commitment. And in all cases, he wasn't in Poland. He came for those conversations. It suggests, uh, I think, a sense of the global urgency that he assigns. But it also suggests that he, while it's never easy to negotiate with governments and heads of state, that he felt he had enough of a mandate to do that. Mm -hmm. And to me, it suggests a level of collective global engagement, which is reflected he's helping resolve something that countries want resolved. Mm notwithstanding where the U.S. is, notwithstanding the fact that this administration has said no, the rest of the world is in and is worried and is acting. 
And interestingly, took the steps to uh, try and catalyze new action uh, via Mike Bloomberg on finance, and then also the focus on security once again within the Security Council right. and impact. So certainly, and he's holding efforts. a summit coming up uh, at the end of uh, or later uh, September of 2019 uh, on the margins of the General Assembly session. He is holding a summit on climate change and has put together a staff to run that process. So to me, again, that shapes what we might think looking forward will happen because you now have political momentum at a politically senior level at a head of state level with the UN and I would argue with China. Mm -hmm. And while we have any number of countries in flux in 2019, I think the EU hasn't disappeared. They're still an active player. You have consensus really across the parties in Germany. You have consensus in the UK, even with the Brexit discussion. It's the Tories and the, the Labour Party both supporting action. Mm -hmm. President Macron has been certainly weakened by the yellow, ver the yellow vest discussion, but there's broad consensus in France that you have to do something on this agenda and financing in the same vein. There's a discussion in Japan about where they move on this conversation. South Africa's got an active program. So it's not as if there's one country pushing and they're a small bit player. Actually, now you have the world pushing and one country out, and it's the only country that's out. It's such an anomaly. So speaking of the uh, the only country out, um, we've got sort of, interestingly, you know, um, we had a podcast last week uh, talking about what has been a surprise, you know, for me, which is the, the, the strength at which this new sort of Democratic Congress and the focus on a Green New Deal has really put a lot of energy into a climate conversation that we didn't expect to be having in this way in 2019. And um, so we've been thinking a lot about how, you know, given the fact that you've got a Trump administration with two more years, you still have Republican control of of, of, of the Senate. Um, and, and climate change is not necessarily a big priority for any of those players in particular. We've been thinking a lot about how, you know, it might manifest itself and, you know, more practical or, or um, other kinds of policy issues that may move, you know, during that time period. And, and one of the ones that comes up is infrastructure, which, you know, certainly is is one of the avenues through which you would need to try and tackle a climate, you know, challenge. What What do you think about it, when you think about the U.S. policy context for for climate and uh, and maybe the infrastructure challenge uh, writ large? I think there are at least two different dimensions of this. The first is that as I look at what's going on in the states, uh, primarily Democratic states, but not exclusively, many have chosen to really emphasize the work on climate change. And it includes states with some Republican governors. So I put Massachusetts, for example, in that mix. Uh, and it includes some of the states that have recently moved from being Democratic to uh, Republican to being Democratic, uh, like a Nevada is in that mix and a New Mexico is in that mix. California has been a historically active player here. But we now have states representing a substantial share of the U.S. economy acting on this agenda. And if anything, the election at the end of last year suggests we'll see more of it. And preliminary indications from new governors and from those who've been around suggest they intend to continue and to increase the tempo of their effort. That's very substantial. I think another thing that happened last year that is relevant to this conversation was a big meeting that was hosted in California at the end of uh, Governor Brown's tenure, the Climate Action Summit, uh, Global Climate Action Summit that was hosted in, in San Francisco. And interestingly enough, it was not only the states that engaged, although that was a, certainly a role, and there were many, many mayors who came from cities around the world, but it was also companies. It was also a corporate commitment and a corporate engagement. 
And it seems to me that that's shaping part of the U.S. strategy and the U.S. policy. The other side is a more uh, infrastructure-oriented perspective. If I look at U.S. infrastructure across much of its, uh, of its breadth, a great deal was developed, was uh, installed in the post-World War II period. And it's coming to the end of its useful life. And we're seeing that in the ratings we get from our civil engineers who rate our bridges and our highways and our coastal revetments and our dams. And they get C's and D's and F's in terms of the quality and the resilience of that capacity. We're going to invest in new infrastructure. It will happen either somewhat more slowly than it ought to after damages and disasters. It will happen in some cases with planning and with forethought. That would be lower cost and probably much better. But it's going to almost certainly be happening in the context of where's the money going to come from and what kind of infrastructure will we put into place. I'm struck by some of the things that we probably have to think about as we invest in that infrastructure. I think it's going to last for the next 50 to 75 years, just as the last round has done, and serve us in the growth of our economy in really critical ways. So what are we going to build? If we build against the rules of 1950, we will not have particularly resilient infrastructure. I'm struck by some of the rules, for example, in FEMA, in the emergency management discussion, that provides resources, but only if you build what you had before. Yeah, right. That kind of rule can't stand. Uh, the kind of thing that that leads to, we had rail tracks, for example, destroyed in Katrina. We had tracks destroyed in the hurricanes that came through the south. And we built the tracks back in the exact same place at the exact same latitude in the elevation. Mm -hmm. No difference. They weren't reinforced. They weren't elevated. We have a huge amount of infrastructure along our coastline. If we don't build it with resilience to climate, it's going to get inundated, and that will happen well before 50 years are out. We're seeing more storms. We're seeing more sea level rise. We're seeing increased subsidence from other reasons, and climate exacerbates the damages. So how do we deal with that? That's one piece. A second piece, which I think is going to be as interesting, if you look at the way people build their buildings today and the way they built them 50 years ago, 50 years ago, the highest tech that you could have was essentially central air conditioning. Mm -hmm. So buildings were built with that and the windows didn't open, not particularly efficient. Mm -hmm. Today, the thing that you need to have is you need to have access for all the lines and the wiring in your system to make your computers work. And if you don't have it, your building doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. We're going to build buildings in the same way for the future. What's that demand? It's going to be for zero emissions buildings. It's going to be for buildings that heat and cool themselves and produce energy from the envelope as opposed to absorbing energy through the HVAC system. It's going to be for infrastructure like vehicle charging places that you manage, which means you have to have access to high tension capacity for your electric vehicle. It's going to be questions about what kind of materials I use. So I use less and use them more effectively. And they last and they are resilient to increased heat and resilient to, to changes in water intensity and flooding, but also to drought. That kind of infrastructure is something that we actually have not yet designed very well. So to me, the conversation is going to have to reflect that. The last piece about it is what about the money? And how do you pay for it? And where does it come from? And I think here there are going to be several different parts to it. A great deal of our infrastructure is based on bond investments and on the structure of financial markets. And I think there's going to be increasing demand from that sector to protect their investment that the new investment be more resilient, mm -hmm. that it be robust against these changes. 
I don't build a 50-year asset and expect to make my money back in the first three years. And if in year four there's a major storm and it wipes me out, I, as the investor, take the hit. I will instead call upon you, the manager of the project, to design a product that will be resilient against that storm, mm -hmm. against that impact, against that damage. And that's going to force you to put some more money in, but I'll lend it to you. I'll make it available under these conditions, and we will make those investments. And it'll be driven by that kind of investment community with those kinds of concerns. And we're increasingly seeing in that community a level of technical analysis that supports their clear indication to go down that road. We see it from people like Mark Carney, who made announcements at the beginning of 2018 around the Financial Stability Board calling for companies to be clear and public about the risk they face from climate change and from climate change policy. That's a shift. We didn't have that kind of market signal that was being sent until very, very recently, and it's now becoming essentially pervasive. Mm -hmm. That structure plays out in places like the big pension funds of California and New York. That plays out in global funds of sovereign wealth funds like Alaska and Norway and the United Arab Emirates. That plays out in large equity pools, which are increasingly looking at putting an enormous amount of money into the green technologies of the future. So to me, that's going to accelerate the governmental policy, accelerate these kinds of city and state and local programs, and take advantage of these lower cost options with that kind of resilience. So I see infrastructure as a huge part of the solution, but also part of the evolution of the thinking and is likely to accelerate quickly over the next few years. It, it is remarkable how many parts of the energy sector we're seeing what used to be maybe like five, 10 years ago, a conversation about government policy plans and objectives leading in telling us where we're going and what our priorities should be and how it should be regulated to there being an absence of that kind of leadership on some levels. Some places are moving ahead and, and trying to create that kind of that leadership or in that direction, and instead coming from the investors, instead coming from folks that sort of understand that the whether you want them to or not, the impacts will be there, the concern over the issue will be there, and therefore you have to push for the policies that you want to have. It's it's sort of flipped, you know, all the way on it. And I think that this is where the science and the new studies have had such a significant consequence, because had at any point people come up with science that actually it's not as bad as we thought, yeah. don't worry about this, we, I think, would have had a different institutional and investor reaction. Mm -hmm. Rather, what we've had is that every time you turn around, there's a new bit of evidence, a new bit of data that says it's more severe, it's more immediate, it's bigger. Mm -hmm. That changes people's thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's changed even further, I think, as we talked about earlier, when you look at the immediacy and the local nature of impact. Yeah. So, uh, you know, given that, I want to kind of close out this conversation. It's been, you know, really great and far range ranging. Given all of that, we're still behind. You know, we're still dreadfully behind on tackling this big problem. What is it like? What are the few areas where you you really see you know optimism you know that you point to in in places? Because not you know if if progress were enough you know we would have reached it, but it's progress against a certain target, and and it's that pace and it's that scale that makes this really really hard to to feel like we're making you know we're making headway. Um, where, where do you look for you know sort of your your optimistic outlook in all of this? So listen, I think it's very tough. And I don't want to underestimate the rate of change that's needed or the difficulty in achieving it. 
one of the things that I often worry about is not so much that people wouldn't be willing to move, but that we are trying to move, as people use the analogy, a huge super tanker, and it takes miles and miles of turning that rudder before the thing actually shifts its direction. I think there are a few things that give me more optimism. Uh, some of them are in the United States and some of them are international. Um, on the international side, uh, I'm struck by the rate of change in places like India and China. And I think that the U.S. will compete with those countries and that when we do, we will do well. And that when the three of us are moving, and I would argue it's four because Europe will do well as also, that that will change the outcome. And we have seen some leading indicators of those shifts. Uh, I'm struck by the example that I have recently been engaged in a discussion about some of the electric buses in China in which it's installed fleets of literally 16,000 new buses, all electric in cities in China. That's an extraordinary number. I mean, the biggest city in the U.S. is, is New York, and it has less than a third that number of buses. And so it only has a handful of electric buses. You can do this, and it is cost effective. The second thing is uh, in thinking about uh, opportunities and where things happen. Uh, I'm struck by um, a, a, a quote, which I won't have exactly accurately, but uh, attributed to Churchill uh, around the United States uh, around the Second World War, in which he says, um, the United States will try every other thing before it goes to the right answer, <laughs> but then it'll do the right answer. And so we'll get there. It just hasn't gotten there yet. We're trying a lot of we're stuff. We're trying a bunch of stuff first. <laughs> so that's, you know, so we're, we're working through a lot of stuff. So yeah. hopefully we'll get to the right answer. Yeah. But I think about some of the things that we're seeing at the city and local level and the experimentation that's happening in these places, and that's actually pretty interesting and pretty substantial. We're seeing some shifts in utility regulation. That feels like it's arcane, but it fundamentally affects whether or not you can get the penetration of substantial quantities of renewable energy. We're leading on much of that material. We're thinking about what kind of companies of the future do, and we're leading in the high tech spaces in many areas. I'm struck by a conversation that I had around if you wanted to think about vehicles and doing something like a congestion charge, mm -hmm. London did this almost 10 years ago, and they had to install over a billion dollars of monitoring systems. I could do it today for $100,000 in an app. Yeah. <laughs> That's an extraordinary shift. The things yeah. that we thought were impossible are actually really within our reach. I'm also struck by uh, the kind of change in attitude. And to me, that may be the most fundamental. We need to change the way people think about the problem and about the solution. And we're seeing reflected in polling and reflected, frankly, in the election and reflected in turnout on various kinds of meetings and discussions a shift in that attitude. And to me, that suggests that this might have been the tipping point year where people are prepared to move and are beginning to see how they move and are getting examples from political leadership about what they can do. Yeah, I, I particularly like the idea that there's been a generational shift where there's a lot of really active young folks who understand that they're faced with a world of intractable problems. And the only way to face that world is to make some of them, you know, move. Go away. And make so the problems go away by doing something with them. <laughs> we're doing because, something. frankly, I think what we've done a little bit too much of is pretending they didn't exist. And um, the other analogy, which I'm very fond of, is so a bus is coming down the road and the ostrich puts his head in the sand. And that wasn't very constructive because the bus will still hit the ostrich. <laughs> you could move. <laughs> you could move, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Jonathan, it's always great to have you here for these conversations. We'll do it again next year, I hope, too. But uh, thanks for your outlook on, on this important topic. Great to have a chance to talk.
Thanks for listening to Energy 360. Find more episodes of Energy 360 on CSIS.org or on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening. Thank you.